It'll make some, some kind of sense. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, excited to be here this morning. Um, just, you know, it's, it is such a, a blessing to, um, to get to, to do life with you guys. Man, I, I appreciate the testimonies this morning from Miss Debbie and from Leah and from David. And, and uh, I, I want to echo Leah this morning. David's testimony is, was excellent. Because I, I was thinking about this this morning. I, I saw a video um, and it was something that was said in there, and I was trying to decide whether or not I was going to share it, but now I'm going to. But, you know, what, what David was, was sharing with this, these other two ladies is that all of us live in a broken world, and we deal with sin, whether it's our own or somebody else's. And the reality is, is we got to muddle through that. And we're not always going to get it right. There's going to be a ton of questions. But at the end of the day, if our goal is to honor God, God's going to be honored, right? That's, that's, and, and if he's not, he's going to tell us. And then we get to, to course correct and, and make it so that we do. Um, th- this morning I was watching this video. Um, you've heard me mention this guy a lot. Um, he has a YouTube channel called Smarter Every Day. Um, and I won't get into the specifics of what the video is about, but he was working with a guy that's a professional glass blower. That's what they do. And they were making some cool stuff. But the guy said, he, ma- he made this, and, and this comment at the end of the video as he was kind of recapping the process that they just went through. And I thought, man, it's such such wisdom. He says, if I'm going to fail, I want to fail all the way. And what he meant by that was, is he's talking, he said, if you're working on a glass project, and let's say it takes five hours, and at the three-hour mark, you make a mistake. If you just stop right there and start over, when you get to the three-hour mark again, you're still in uncharted territory. You still don't know what you're doing. He said, so if I make a failure at the three-hour mark, I'm going to go all the way to the end of the project so that I'm learning something, so that I can learn from those failures. And I thought, man, what a great, I'm not saying that we should, if we mess up, we should chase that failure all the way to the end in our spiritual lives, but it is a good reminder that we are going to mess up, that we're going to make mistakes. And if we'll chase those, those rabbit trails, if we'll chase those thoughts to the end of wherever God wants to bring us to, rather than just stopping and not thinking about it anymore, because that's what we want to do, right? We want to mess up sometimes, or we don't want to mess up. We mess up, and we just like, I want to just forget that that ever happened. And when we do that, we miss the opportunity to learn from our failures. And so I thought all of that this morning, the Holy Spirit was bringing that together for us, just to kind of help us to understand that we're not always going to get it right, and it's okay. God's grace is bigger than our mistakes. Amen? Um, last week, we took a week off from our study in the book of Luke to celebrate and reflect on Easter. And the focus of that message was on what it means to be born again. And that was a really, for me, it was a fun one to preach. And, and I got some great responses from you guys. But we looked at the interaction between Nicodemus and Jesus. And then we finished with a reflection on the prodigal son and talking about and thinking about how God feels about his children. And for me, that was such a a beautiful way to end an Easter message about salvation is, is talking about the fact that God loves us no matter what, right? That there's nothing that we can do that's going to make him love us any more or any less. Um, and in fact, he is waiting for us to, to make that, that turn in our minds and our hearts to go back to him. And as soon as we make that decision, boom, he's running to meet us. We don't have to go that distance. He's doing it for us. Um, God wants us to understand, church, just how much he loves us. Um, I, I love the, this song that we just ended our worship time with this morning about um, the goodness of God's love and that the things that we are doing here this morning and in our lives are for the glory of God. Not because we have to, but because we want to, because we're so in love with him. Um, I, I wanted to just reiterate from last week that God has already defined us when he created us. And man, that was such a powerful thought for me this last week and this week as I reflected on this message again, that God has already defined us. I, I shared um, 
uh, song that I heard last week where it talks about our failures don't define us, God does. And man, that was a powerful word for me. And not only did he define us when he created us, but he defined us or he gave us even more value when he sent his son to die for us. It reiterates the love that God has for us. And we need those weapons, those tools against the enemy who is trying to convince us that when we make those mistakes that we are no longer worthy. Um, and, and Jesus says that is not the case. Um, I spent a lot, a lot of our time discussing what it means to be born again and specifically about life here on earth. And as I was thinking back through this content again this week, God brought something that I feel is of great significance to my mind. Um, I've been aware uh, for most of my life that the church's main focus in salvation is on the promise of heaven. We talked about that last week. And while that is completely true, as believers, we're going to experience heaven when we die. But that's not what we were created for. Right? God did not create us to live in heaven. He created us to live with him on this earth in his kingdom. And in fact, that's what he's going to do when Jesus returns. Is he's going to bring the full kingdom of God back here on earth as he redeems the world and the creation and the people that are in it. God put some pieces together for me this week from my own past to kind of solidify what he was trying to say. I think I've shared this story with you guys before, but Many years ago when I was much younger and not quite as gray, um, back uh, actually in the days when I was Kyle's youth pastor, I remember sitting in my office at the church where I worked, um, prepping for a lesson on a Wednesday night. And as I was prepping this lesson, I was trying to figure out, and, and hopefully you've identified with this. Well, hopefully you don't, but maybe you will. I was trying to figure out how to sell the idea of the gospel to the, to the students I was going to be teaching. And here's, here was my problem. My problem wasn't with the gospel. My problem was with my experience in the church growing up. My problem was is that because of some circumstances in the church where I was working and some bigger things that were going on in my life, there was nothing about church life that felt appealing to me. And so how do I sell this in a way? And that is not, I'm not making a condemnation about the church at that time. I think this is something that's happened globally in the church and something that we have all identified and struggled with in different places. This is not unique to me. But I was miserable specifically in some things the the way the church was dealing with people. Because when I looked at Scripture, it did not match up with what I saw of the New Testament church. It didn't feel the way I thought that it should feel, and it didn't seem to line up. It didn't make sense for me, and I was struggling about how to make the case for others to join me in my miserable state. Does that make sense? You feeling me? Okay. So God reminded me of that time this week as I'm thinking through this Easter message that he gave me. And he, he showed me that at that point in my life, and at that point in the church's life, the focus was on heaven because we had no real experience of what it meant to walk with God here. The reason the church was struggling is because their focus was on something else and it wasn't God. It was on themselves. My focus wasn't on God. It was on myself and how I felt. At that time in my life, I did not understand what it meant to abide in Jesus. I did not understand I didn't know by experience the fullness that comes from walking with the Lord and hearing His voice and experiencing that active, vibrant relationship that we read about in the New Testament, right? I, I had not fully experienced that for myself. And I believe the same has been true for much of the church as a whole. And as we focused on the promise of what's going to come in the future, we're missing the point of what we were created for here on earth. Guys, that's... The point of this whole sermon series, right, is to know Jesus and to make him known, not when we die, right? That's too late. The point 
is to make him known now, to know him now and to make him known now. That's why we're studying the book of Luke. That's why God has brought us to this study at this time. It's to know him personally. And to know him personally is to live in the kingdom of God right now, not when we die. Right? It's to experience the fullness of God here on earth. And in knowing Jesus, we are compelled by his great love for us, by that grace that we talked about last week, that grace that we have experienced. We are compelled by it to tell people of the freedom that we have experienced. Right? We're Americans. We like to talk about freedom, right? Yaha! Eagles and fireworks and whatnot. That's not the freedom I'm talking about. The freedom I'm talking about is the freedom from sin, the freedom from death, the freedom to be ourselves and be God's, and that is enough. As we continue to move forward in, in our study today, we're going to find ourselves looking at a story of, of Anna the prophetess. And here is our challenge from God today. If we're really going to know God in the way that he wants us to, there are some things about our past that we're going to have to let go of. We need to be prepared to allow God to challenge some of the things that we have been taught in the past. There are certain aspects of our faith tradition that are restrictive in ways that I don't think God intended for them to be restrictive. And I want you to consider as you're thinking about that for a moment, the religious leaders of Jesus' time and how much Jesus challenged their theology. Right? We see all of these interactions in the New Testament where Jesus and the Pharisees are butting heads on stuff because they think they got it figured out. And Jesus is trying to help them to understand that they don't have it all figured out. It'd be foolish and pig-headed of us to think that Jesus will not challenge us in the same way. There are things that we have grown up believing or being taught that sometimes are just slightly off or sometimes completely wrong. My personal goal today is not to try to change your theology, okay? I want to, you just everybody take a breath and go, okay? My goal, God's goal today, what I'm asking you is simply to make space in your heart and your mind for God to work and move in your theology as he sees fit. Everybody comfortable with that? Letting God do that working? Okay. As we read and study this passage today, we're going to see God use a person that our culture would consider an unlikely source to share the truth about who Jesus of Nazareth was with the people that are in the temple. Look with me at Luke chapter 2. We're just going to read uh, three verses today, Luke uh, 36 through 38. I'll give you just a minute to turn there. Sorry, I should have told you that way earlier. But Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38. And I'll remind you while you're turning there, we are picking up, this, this is right after Simeon prophesies over Jesus to Mary and Joseph. Remember, he brought him to the temple to be circumcised. Carrie taught about that the week prior. Um, and then we looked at, two weeks ago, Simeon making this prophecy, beautiful prophecy over Mary and Joseph. And, and I'll remind you too, as we're moving in, that I focus primarily on his words to Mary, right? And the fact that the things that she was going to have to endure in order for Jesus to do the things he needed to do was going to be like a sword that pierced her soul. Look at it. If you look one verse back at 35, it says, and a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is talking about the changes that are going to have to be made or the things that are going to be revealed about the hearts of all people. And that's also true of us. Okay. So I just want us to kind of be back in that space as we begin today. So starting with verse 36. It says, there was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and was a widow for 84 years. 
She did not leave the temple serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Today, I want us to focus on three major ideas that Luke addresses in these three verses. And then we're going to make some application at the end. But I want us to see that Luke describes the character, the role, and the ministry of Anna in the proclamation of Jesus as the Redeemer of Israel. There's a very specific reason that Luke addresses all three of these things. Her character, which is the product of her relationship with God, is what qualified her for this work. I also want us to see that the role that Anna was fulfilling is a well-defined and historical concept. Church, I, I want to I say this. This is an important thing for us to understand. This, this thing, this prophesying that Anna was, was doing is significant to me personally. And, and I'll talk about that probably more in a little bit. But this is important because over the last 50 years or so, there's been a trend in the evangelistic circles to downplay the role of women in the spreading of the gospel. And my hope is that by the end of our time today, that all of us will clearly understand why God chose Anna and the importance of her ministry in establishing the credibility of Jesus as Messiah. Anna played an incredibly important role in that, and I want to highlight that today. Look again with me at verses 36 and 37, and let's, let's think about Anna's character. Okay? It says, there was also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple serving God night and day with fasting and with prayers. So Luke tells her her dad's name and the tribe that her family comes from. And we don't know anything else about her father. That's all we know is his name, right? But it's believed that Luke includes this information to establish her lineage and her belonging. If we were talking about animals, we'd say it's her progeny right? Luke is identifying that this woman who is prophesying about Jesus to the people in the temple is from the tribe of Asher, which makes her what? An Israelite, right? So he's saying this is not some random woman off of the street. This is, these are, this is our people. This is an Israelite who would have, by default, known would have grown up with the traditions and the understandings of what the Messiah was supposed to be, right? Do you see the connection there? He's relying or relaying to the original audience that she is a person who would have known the history of Israel and understood the gravity of what God was speaking through her. I read a paper on this passage this week, and the author explains that including Anna with the testimony of Simeon, uh, Luke is showing the fulfillment of the law's requirement for at least two witnesses in legal cases. And that's out of Deuteronomy. Flip with me, Deuteronomy um, chapter 19, verse 15. I know y'all don't have a little thing, so you can't flip that fast, but it'll also be up on the screen. But this is important. This is a key detail in this whole deal of why Anna is listed. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, about witnesses in the court in a legal case, it says, one witness cannot establish any uh, iniquity or sin against a person, whatever that person has done. A fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Here's what Luke is saying. Here's the reason that he includes this in here. Is that if Sam, uh, Simeon had been the only one to testify about Jesus' Messiahship at his birth, the Pharisees, the religious leaders could flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15 and say, uh-uh, that's only one witness. That ain't enough. So God sends a second witness and he sends Anna. 
So by including Anna, Luke is showing that we have two well-known Israelite people that are professing that Jesus is the Messiah. Luke also tells us her age, which is another cultural marker of reliability and wisdom. The same is true in our culture as well, right? The more gray hair a person has, the wiser we believe them to be, right? That's a good assumption to make. I'm well on my way to being wise, but I'm not there yet. So uh, there's some others. I won't point any fingers, but you'll be able to identify who they are that are wiser than me, okay? Someone's age speaks to the wisdom that they possess. And there's some debate over where, if you, some translations it says that she was a widow, or she was married for seven years and then a widow for 84 years, which would make her, if you factor in all the stuff, like 105 years old. Some translations say that uh, she was 84 years old. Either way, it doesn't matter. The same, yeah, as, as Leah just said, she's old, yeah. Okay. Lastly, Luke speaks of the consistency of her spiritual life. Again, establishing her credibility as a reliable witness. You may have heard people describe others or themselves by saying if the church doors were open, they were there growing up. Yeah, that's Anna. Okay, that's what, that's what he's saying is she was there all the time. Maybe they, there was, I, I, I had an a, a image up here of the temple, but then I realized the dating was a little bit wrong. I remember last week I showed you, or two weeks ago I showed you Herod's temple. I had another image that showed the expansion of that after the little piece that we saw that was like, six times bigger than what I showed you last time. It's massive, but that wasn't completed until about 64 AD, and then it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, which is super sad. Um, But anyway, um, she either lived in the temple, there was places for that, or directly near the temple is what scholars believe. So she was there, she was all the time, worshiping and praising God. Many commentators make mention of the detail that Luke gives to her over the limited details that we get about Simeon. Simeon is just very short. You can go back and look at that later. But Luke intentionally slows down the narrative of the story to make sure that it is known that Anna also testifies about who Jesus was. And he makes time to to give her credibility, right? To say that this is who this was. We know her. She was legit, okay? We're going to see that come into play later in the book when others try to disprove Jesus as the Messiah. Everybody's able to point back like, no, we got two witnesses, two reliable witnesses, Okay. Namely, the religious leaders are going to be the ones who are trying to draw that card. So here we have Anna, who has the right background to understand the gravity of what God's speaking. She is of the age to possess great wisdom, and she has a spiritual life that is consistent and well-established. And God uses Anna to play an important role in the announcement of who Jesus is in the temple. And I cannot stress enough just how important this moment is in the life of Jesus, okay? So now I want us to look at how God uses her in this moment. So we've established Anna's character. Let's look at Anna's role. And I want us to look at just the first couple of words of 36, and then we'll jump down to 38 together. Let me flip back here. So it says, there was also uh, a prophetess, Anna. Okay, and then in verse 38, he says, at that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So Luke describes Anna as a prophetess, and this causes us to ask several good questions. Number one, what, is, what did Luke mean by prophetess? Okay, number two, would the original audience have understood, what would they have understood him to be talking about? And then number three, what is the biblical role of a prophetess, right? We need to understand those things so we can understand what Luke's talking about. So this is going to be wordy, and it's going to be on the screen. I need you to hang in there with me, okay? Because I got some excerpts from a couple of different commentaries. The first one's from the Hopper Collins Bible Dictionary. 
Um, and it says, a prophetess is a woman who serves as a channel of communication between the human and divine worlds. In their prophetic behavior and religious functions, prophetesses are not distinguished from their male counterparts. The NRSV uses the word prophetess in eight passages, and they're listed there. And then it says, but the strong tendency in contemporary biblical scholarship is to call a woman who prophesies a prophet. If you want to go look those passages up, if you'll grab a copy of the outline on your way out, all of those passages are listed at the top of the outline. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says that a prophetess is a female prophet, in one instance, possibly the wife of a prophet, and that's referring to Isaiah's wife. And in the Old Testament, the title is applied to five women, to Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron, to Deborah, the charismatic judge, to the wife of Isaiah, to Huldah, who was consulted by King Josiah, and to Noadad, a false prophetess who opposed Nehemiah. Rabbinical tradition recognized seven prophetesses who prophesied to Israel, Sarah, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Abigail, Huldah, and Esther. And in the New Testament, the term appears only twice, referring to Anna, which is what we read today, who recognized the proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, and to the temptress Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. The other women who prophesied in the early church are referred to in Acts 21, verse 9, the four daughters of Philip, and 1 Corinthians eleven five. One of the signs of the Messianic age is that men and women will prophesy, and that comes from Acts chapter 2, verse 17. The Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary just defines it as a female prophet, a woman serving as God's spokesperson. So I want us to look at a few of those passages together while we're here because I want to solidify this idea in our mind. So Judges 4.4, it says, Deborah, a prophetess, and the life of Lapidoth was judging Israel at the time. 2 Kings 22.14, so the priest Hilakai, Ahikam, Akbar, Shaphan, and Asa, um, went up to the prophetess Huldah, the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, son of Haraharahas, <laughs> keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second district. They spoke with her. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And then Acts chapter 21, verse 9. This man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And then 1 Corinthians eleven five, Paul says, Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. As we can clearly see through these examples, and there's even more if you want to go look them up, having a woman speak on God's behalf was not unusual. So let's go back to those questions we just asked and answered them. Question number one was, what did Luke mean by a prophetess? Luke means that Anna spoke on God's behalf about the role that Jesus would play in the life of all people. She prophesied that Jesus was the one that would redeem Israel. Question number two, what would the original audience have understood him to be talking about? It was a well-established idea and culturally acceptable for a woman to be a prophet, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. They would have ranked her with the list of Old Testament prophecies like Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Huldah, and others. And there would have been no confusion from the original audience as to the greatness of her ministry. And number three, what's the biblical role of a prophetess? A prophet is any person directed by the inspiration of God to proclaim his will. Simply put, a prophet and a prophetess are men and women who speak God's message 
on God's behalf to God's people. Okay? So as we can clearly see, there is a biblical cultural case. There's a well-established concept in both the Old and the New Testaments that women can serve as God's spokesperson. So let's look back at verse 38 again, and let's talk about Anna's ministry. Again, verse 38 says, at that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So the word here that's translated as moment literally translates that very hour, okay? And that's an important distinction that I want to bring out because what I don't want us to think is that Anna simply overheard what Simeon was saying and then jumped on his coattails. That messes up the whole two reliable witnesses things. This is an important key element of this whole deal. Anna was not repeating what she heard someone else say. She was prophesying. She was God's spokesperson. She was speaking on God's behalf that this is my son who will redeem Israel. The Holy Spirit revealed this to Anna, and she goes to Mary and Joseph and Jesus so that she could thank God for sending the Messiah. This is an important step in that witness process. Anna saw the baby for herself, and the Holy Spirit confirmed it for her, right? Again, going back to the reliable witness, if if you're on the testimony stand and the prosecutor says, did you see this? Did you see the child yourself? If she would have said no, no longer reliable witness, right? So she goes to the baby. And then says that she goes, Scripture says that she goes to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So who would these people have been, right? I can only imagine that that was literally everyone in the temple. Because I want you to think about for a minute, we've talked about this before, the political climate that Jerusalem is in at that moment that the people of Israel have been under for hundreds of years. They've been uh, over and over in these moments of occupation and dispersion from the Persians, from the Assyrians, now the Romans. So in this moment, the people of God, what are they looking for? They're looking for a savior, someone to literally save them. So when it says Anna goes and tells everyone who was interested in the redemption, in the saving of Israel, that I think literally means everyone in the proximity of the temple. And she would have been well known because she was there day and night, scripture says. So this is not some lunatic that comes in and starts spouting something off. This is a woman that was known who has this word from the Lord about this baby and she shares it with the people. Everybody would have wanted to hear the incredible news that this long-awaited Messiah is here. And so Anna is proclaiming the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Israel. Many commentators, if you look in your Bible, there's a, a link there to Isaiah 52.9 where Isaiah says, Be joyful together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. And so Anna is prophesying to fill the prophecy of another prophet. You see what we got happening here? Some really cool stuff. God is tying all this together in such a way that is irrefutable and he's using Anna to do this. Luke shows that God clearly used both a man and a woman to bring testimony into the temple about the person of Jesus, right? And the significance of the temple is important too because who, who is it that dwelled in the temple? It's God, right? God lived in the temple. That's why it was there. And so Jesus comes in and we have these two different people prophesying, speaking on God's behalf saying, this is my presence. This is me. I have sent my son, Jesus, to be your Savior. 
they affirmed the Messiahship in the place where God's presence was supposed to be. They were led by the Holy Spirit, they obeyed the Holy Spirit, and they shared all of this with those that would listen. Anna knew God. She knew how to hear his voice, and she obeyed what God told her to do. And so when we think about the application of this passage, we can see that God wants to use all people, both men and women, to share who Jesus is with all people. So here's my last point, and this is going to be the challenge, I think, for some is that God places no limits on who he can use to share the gospel. And as I mentioned in the introduction, there's been a tendency to downplay women's role in speaking on God's behalf. And as we have seen today, this was not the case for Anna, prophetesses of old, nor the women of the New Testament. God has not placed a limit on who can speak on his behalf. And if God has not placed a limit, we should not limit either. We should not limit what God does not limit. So in preparing for this message this week and when I was writing my outline, I thought about the women in this church and how effective their ministries have been in sharing the truth about who Jesus is to our body and outside of these walls. And there's no doubt in my mind that God speaks through those women. And God wants to use every man and woman in the body to share the truth of the gospel of Jesus. The Great Commission was not for men alone. In fact, women were the first to share that Jesus had risen from the dead. And we're going to talk about that when we get to that point in Luke. But they proclaimed the good news first. In our passage today, we see God speak through Anna. We see that Anna spent her life pursuing God, worshiping and serving Him. Anna's ministry was to proclaim the good news to those in the temple that the Messiah was here. God prepared and empowered Anna to fulfill the call that he had on her life. And God has and will continue to do the same in the women in our church. And we have been and will continue to be greatly blessed by the ministries of the women in this body. And on a personal note, I want to say thank you for your ministry, for your obedience to hear from the Lord and to share that with the church. I can say personally that it's changed my life. It's made me a better man. It's made me a better follower of Jesus. And if at any point you have felt downplayed in your role in this body, I want to apologize for that. We see it in Scripture, and I've experienced it in my own life. God speaks through you. And we are forever indebted to your obedience like we are to anybody else. Thank you, and let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your love that you have for your people. God, I thank you to be a, for being a part of a body where we can talk about things that perhaps are controversial in other places and do it in a way that is, that is loving. Father, I thank you specifically for the women in our church who know you, who have a well and long established relationship with you, who can speak life into our body, who can be trusted, who we know so well that that love you and that love this body and want to see it grow. They want to see the gospel shared in this world. Jesus, as we come to know you more with a desire to make you known, Father, I ask you to clarify in our hearts and our minds who we are in you. Father, that our value would not be determined by the things that we've done in the past or things that people have said to us or to others. But Father, we would find our value, our purpose, our ministry, 
our calling only in you and in your word and through your Holy Spirit. Father, as we close out in worship this morning, Lord, I ask that you would speak truth into all of our hearts. Father, no matter where we find ourselves in this idea and in this message, Father, I ask that your spirit would give us peace and truth and love and honor for one another. God, I ask these things in your name. Amen. Go ahead and stand.